From Schwartz Media, I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. Right now, if you contract COVID-19, the federal government's advice is to contact the National Coronavirus Helpline. The hotline is supposed to direct you to the latest medical information, inform you of how long you should isolate and whether you should get tested. But in practice, it's staffed by workers who don't have access to the information they need and administered by a company that previously chased welfare recipients caught up in the infamous robo-debt program. Today, senior reporter at the Saturday paper, Rick Morton, on the outsourcing of a key frontline health service and the impact of privatisation during the pandemic. It's Tuesday, February 8th. Rick, first of all, can you tell me how you came across this story? Yeah, this is a really interesting one, actually. I don't normally do much on my weekends, by the way, Ruby, but I was in Melbourne for the tennis and I kept getting these phone calls from a number I didn't recognise. And it was Saturday and Sunday, so I didn't pick up. But they didn't leave a message either, which was kind of annoying. (laughs) And then eventually they finally did. And they were saying, you know, I have some information that you might be interested in. It's about the National Coronavirus Helpline. And, And that phone call led to the discovery of a cache of documents about how this hotline was operating. Right. So can you tell me more about the hotline then and, and what it was that you found out about it? Yeah, so it's it's called the National Coronavirus Helpline. There, there is help available 24 hours a day, seven days a week uh, on the National Coronavirus Helpline, 1800 020. It's the centrepiece of the federal government's Living with COVID program. You can call this number at any time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for advice about management of any of your symptoms, for other medical advice, advice about vaccines or about... And it's basically an information hotline that triages people who have tested positive for COVID-19 or who believe they are infected as part of the Commonwealth's pivot to managing the disease in the community, again, to relieve the pressure from the hospital system and the broader health system. Thank you for calling the National Coronavirus Helpline. If you need urgent help... But in reality, it's just a call centre and it's staffed by workers on casual contracts with no medical experience. We are experiencing longer-than-usual wait times on the National Coronavirus Helpline. For all the latest vaccine and restriction information, please visit health.gov.au. Okay, so, Rick, if you get COVID-19, you're supposed to call this government helpline, but you're saying that on the other end, the person who's answering... They have no medical training. No, not the call agents who pick up these calls. They do have clinical officers somewhere in the group, but the calls don't make it to them unless it's particularly urgent. And so we've got these kind of low-paid workers on casual contracts who have been offered just two hours of training when they start with this company. And, you know, I have accounts from people who have worked there and they've been talking about the fact that they've been placed under extreme stress while managing this overwhelming variety of calls, you know, with limited information or limited ability to actually help them because what they're doing is relying on the information provided to them by the government and there's just not a lot there. So, for instance, the coronavirus helpline is listed as the number one point of contact on almost every government department, including home affairs and for disability and Aboriginal health services, despite there being no specific resources 
for the team members to even provide the advice. So they're kind of getting... They're getting set up to fail, really. (laughs) Yes. I mean, there's nothing, you know, I mean, imagine you or I doing that job. Would you know what to say to these people who are often in distress, they're worried about family members, they might actually be quite sick themselves. And that's exactly what's happening. So the helpline workers are also fielding calls from people who are experiencing family violence, poverty, you know, the other types of this extreme stress. And they're expected to arrange welfare checks or talk them through complex problems with with little support. And although they are provided scripts for the call centre operators and they're meant to read from these scripts to advise patients to do things like seek rapid antigen tests if they are available, that's word for word, but it's not part of the helpline's remit, for example, to actually provide those tests or even they even where they might be located because the problem, as you and I both know quite well by now, is that the government doesn't know you know, they, they bought a few, they sent a few out into the wilderness, and if you get one, you're lucky, and if not, tough luck. Right. Well, it sounds like an incredibly difficult situation that would be frustrating for people on, on both ends, Rick, the person who's calling, trying to get help, and the person on the other end who just doesn't have the tools to be able to, to give that help. So how did this happen exactly? How did the centrepiece of the government's living with COVID plan become this hotline that's staffed with people that, that don't have enough training, that can't give people the, the advice that they need? It's a great question. And basically, it's because even though it's a government hotline being promoted by the government and it's paid for by the government, it's been outsourced to a private company. It's been run by an umbrella company called Probe Group and its subsidiaries on contracts that are worth more than $270 million dollars. And the probe group has a lot of history in working with the government, but not really in terms of providing health services. In fact, it's not a health service company at all. It is one of the government's former robo-debt collectors. The federal court has approved a multi-million dollar payout for victims of the controversial robo-debt scheme. This was that program that was run for years and in which at least $1.7 billion in debt notices were handed out to people that were ultimately deemed illegal. The program saw debts totalling $1.7 billion were unlawfully raised from more than 430,000 Australians. A debt collector calling me up, telling me, you know, you owe thousands of dollars, $16,000, and uh, you have to pay now. There has been untold suffering to hundreds of thousands of people not just wrong, but actually unlawful and and knowingly so. In a blistering judgment, Justice Bernard Murphy said RoboDebt had exposed a shameful chapter in the administration of the social security system and a massive failure of public administration. So this company was the one that actually chased people who owed money under the now illegal RoboDebt scheme. And now it's providing this hotline to provide the, the first point of call health information for people in a once-in-a-generation pandemic. We'll be back in a moment. As a a. 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read POST, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points. Sign up today at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. As a a. 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points with links to full articles from a range of sources. Get the news you need to your inbox every weekday morning with Post. Sign up at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash 
newsletters. Rick, could you tell me more about how this situation where a private company that specialises in debt collection is now running the national COVID-19 hotline, how that came about? Because chasing welfare debts and providing advice to people about COVID-19, they would, on the face of it, seem to be quite different jobs. So back when this hotline was first announced, the call centres were set up by a company called Stellar Asia Pacific. That company has since been bought by Probe Group, which, and, and they were two former rivals. In fact, they were often listed side by side as um, preferred suppliers in government procurement contracts. But now, of course, they're just one company. And together, the two companies have won more than half a billion dollars in government contracts in the past five years, largely with Services Australia and the Australian Taxation Office also to collect tax debts in that case. And so because of their history working closely with the government on providing these kinds of services, that's where the government turned again when they needed a new system set up as quickly as possible. And it's really just another example of how hollowed out our government services are, that you know these private companies are paid hundreds of millions of dollars to run pretty basic things like the welfare system and a core component of our public health. And yet that's what we've ended up with, of course. Mm. Yeah. I mean, as you say, Rick, this is not the first time that we've heard about big government contracts going to private companies. And that trend really seems to have accelerated during the pandemic. Does it seem that way to you? Yeah. Uh, I mean, certainly, you know, I've been reporting on this now for two and a half years almost. And they privatised some of the vaccination clinics for aged care and disability care. They privatised or at least heavily relied on with massive incentives, private pathology for the testing, the PCR testing, the lab testing. They privatised some elements of the contact tracing, uh, hotel quarantine. I'm talking about all levels of government here, by the way, but mostly the federal government, which is, you know, trying to run the show in a national cabinet setup. And they privatised, you know, even policy advice when it came to whether we should manufacture mRNA vaccines in Australia, which was, of course, done by McKinsey, the management consultants. So it's almost like things were not great before the pandemic arrived, of course, in terms of the public service being gutted and private companies doing a lot of the work. But the moment you actually do have a a major crisis unfold, suddenly you don't have the depth of experience, the talent, or even even the contract management skills, to be quite honest, to to get yourself out of the jam. And that's what we're that's what we're witnessing. Yeah, it doesn't really seem to be working. I mean, judging what you've said about how the probe group is is running the COVID nineteen hotline and you know, staff that aren't trained properly. So do you get the sense that that might be acknowledged by policymakers, that there might be any kind of realisation that there should be perhaps more investment in these services rather than privatising them? Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. I mean, I don't, no, I don't get that sense and I don't want to be overly cynical about it, but I do get the sense that, particularly with the COVID stuff, the ability to outsource the problem is part of, the thinking in modern government these days. It's like, well, it's off our books. We've solved it. You know, we needed a call centre. We've got a call centre. Who cares whether it's actually good or not? But we've got a call centre so we can say that there's a number, you can call the number, and, you know, everything else is personal responsibility, quote, unquote, to use Scott Morrison's preferred term. And that kind of solves the immediate problem, but it's every every kind of one of these calculations is a false economy because, you know, sometimes I do things in the immediate moment that make my life easier, but it makes the future version of myself makes things more difficult for future Rick, for example. And it's the same in government. You can solve an immediate problem, but it doesn't mean it's actually got to help you in the long term. And that applies to both the way the government operates, but also to whether citizens or residents are getting the services they need. 
And so, Rick, how do you think we should think about all of this going forward when we consider that the pandemic, it's it's far from over? It doesn't exactly fill me with, with confidence. Yeah, I don't think there's been a lot of learning, even, you know, they kept saying things were unprecedented at the start, and of course they were, but things are now very precedented. <laughs> a lot of these things are familiar patterns in this pandemic now. I don't have a crystal ball, of course, for exactly what might happen. I do know that there has been substantial Omicron uh, infection uh, in the past couple of months. Now, on Wednesday last week, the nation's chief medical officer, Professor Paul Kelly, was asked whether further waves of coronavirus infections are expected in the coming winter. Now, he couldn't say for sure. So there's a lot of people that have had Omicron. There is also a lot of people that have not had Omicron. Um, And I think there's been... Uh, there's emerging evidence that people above a certain age um, have have generally withdrawn from from society over this last month. He did acknowledge that there is emerging evidence that people above a certain age, and he put it in the range, you know, above 50 and 60, have generally withdrawn from society over the last month or, or two months to avoid infections, and that's the cohort that they're now worried about. So if they have not been... Uh, exposed, they, they are at risk of being exposed in, in the next wave of Omicron. There will be another wave of Omicron. It's most likely in winter. And he said, there will be another wave of Omicron. And now all we're really left with is this hotline to help us. And, you know, do you think that that is a good solution? I certainly, it doesn't feel like it is to me. Rick, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Ruby. With award-winning news coverage and reviews, The Saturday Paper is essential reading for everybody. For a limited time, subscribe to a year of our quality, independent journalism, and you'll receive The Saturday Paper's stainless steel coffee cup made in collaboration with Fresco for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. The Saturday Paper. No hot takes. Also in the news today, the federal government has confirmed a national anti-corruption commission will not be established before the upcoming election. Despite Prime Minister Scott Morrison promising the establishment of a corruption watchdog in 2018, a spokesperson for Attorney-General Michaelia Cash on Monday said the government would be prioritising other legislation. And in Western Australia, hundreds of firefighters are battling bushfires in the state's south, several homes and businesses have been destroyed and over 60,000 hectares of bush have been burned. Bushfire specialists and additional firefighters from New South Wales have been flown into the state to assist local authorities. I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. See you tomorrow.